Welcome to episode 16 of Corn Syrup, a horror podcast. I'm Tyler. And I'm Chelsea. What's going on? Not much. How about you? I'm doing well. Back again, huh? Yeah. Mike is uh, celebrating his 30th birthday down in Miami. So while he's soaking up the sun in South Beach, we're here talking about winter isolation movies, part two. And freezing our asses off. Yeah, lots of snow. Um, But yeah, we did this a few weeks ago, Mike and I, we spoke about The Thing, which might be the first movie I think about when I think winter isolation. And then we also discussed Frozen, which is a low-budget thriller type. But we are back here with our Stephen King edition of winter isolation movies. Fitting that you and I are doing this, I guess. Yeah. We are big Stephen King fans, as anybody who knows us probably knows. Uh, Let's start with some horror news. Well, let's first say what we're going to be doing. We're going to be discussing Misery uh, from 1990 and The Shining from 1980. Uh, But before we get into those two movies, let's kick it off with some horror news. And oddly enough, some Stephen King-related news. Edgar Wright director of Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, Scott Pilgrim, uh, Baby Driver. He has been tabbed to direct a remake of The Running Man, which is a Stephen King novel from 1982 that I actually have not read. But uh, a movie was made in 1987 starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Haven't seen the movie either. No. But <laughs> anyway, that there's some Stephen King news for you. Edgar Wright, I'm pretty much interested in anything he does. And Lisey's Story which we go from The Running Man, which I've never read, to a novel I have read, but is probably my least favorite Stephen King novel. Uh, Apple TV has a movie coming out this summer for Lisey's story. The good news is it's starring Julianne Moore as Lisey, who is really good. So that gives me some hope. Uh, But overall, not a great novel. And I I think you read it as well, right? I did. And I liked it. I mean, I think I read it on our honeymoon, and I think that was a good time to read that Pro- book. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> it's more of, it has a love story, which not many of King's books really do. Yeah, I mean, it has horror elements, but there's definitely a love story involved. It's okay. But uh, moving on, Ari Oster coming off Hereditary and Midsummer or Midsummer, if you want to get fancy with it has uh, announced his next project. Unfortunately, it sounds like it may not be horror, which would be a big loss for the horror genre, but sometimes those things happen. Um, It's called Disappointment Boulevard. Uh, What's interesting about it is it's starring Joaquin Phoenix, but it's described as a decades-spanning portrait of one of the most successful entrepreneurs of all time. So unfortunately, it doesn't sound like it's horror, that has not been confirmed nor denied. Again, losing Ari Oster would be a big loss. Of course, he could always come back. But um, as a horror fan, I was looking forward to what he was going to do next within the genre. You've seen both Hereditary and Midsummer. Yeah, I have. Great movies. Scary. Creepy movies. Well, I'm, I mean, I think Hereditary is one of the scariest movies of all time. Yeah, definitely. It's my opinion. Yeah. And Midsummer is... Midsummer definitely gets under your skin and stays with you for a long time. Uh, So, I mean, he he might be, me and Mike talk about how Mike Flanagan is probably the best mainstream horror director going where, you know, like you could bring anybody to a Mike Flanagan movie. Like 
I mean, I could bring my mom to see Doctor Sleep, and I think she might appreciate it. Whereas Ari Oster's movies, you really got to be a horror fan. It's oh, yeah. it's it's much more niche. Yeah. Um, but I love Ari Oster. I think him and Robert Eggers, who directed The Witch and The Lighthouse, are are two of the best, more niche horror directors. Um, ongoing for sure. So. Horror or not, I'm interested to see what Ari Aster does, especially if Joaquin Phoenix is involved, which has been confirmed. Horror adjacent. This isn't really horror, but Martin Scorsese has announced his next project coming off The Irishman, uh, starring Leonardo DiCaprio. Naturally, he's in a lot of Scorsese, as is Robert De Niro. He's in it, too. But the thing that really caught my eye is Jesse Plemons has been announced as the lead oh. in that movie. I love Jesse Ple- Plemons. I think he's very understated, underrated. Um, so sign me up for that. It's called Killers of the Flower Moon. I have no idea what it's about, but I'm interested in anything Scorsese does. And if Plemons has the lead, then I'm all for it. Yeah, you're a big fan of his. Speaking of adjacent to the horror genre, did you see the trailer for Cruella? With Emma Stone? Emma Stone, I did see it. What do you think? So, growing up as a kid, 101 Dalmatians was my all-time favorite Disney movie. This doesn't look like 101 Dalmatians. It looks very different, and I don't think it's trying to be the same story. It's kind of scary. I mean, it looks dark for a kid's movie. A lot of what I read online is people don't understand what... Who's the target audience? Yeah. Because you can't take your kids to see it. No. Is there a desire for people like yourself that grew up with 101 Dalmatians to see a movie about... Wasn't Cruella de Vil a, a puppy killer? Yes. She okay. like wanted to wear animal fur, dog furs. Right. So she's a horrible human being. That's kind of how I felt. Like It looked too dark for a kid's movie. Let me put it this way. I'll watch it for free on Disney+. Plus. I'm not going to pay to see that movie. I'll wait till it comes out to watch for free. It almost seems like Disney's version of Suicide Squad or something, yes. where you're, you're highlighting, <laughs> you know, bad people. Yeah. But Cruella is especially bad because she killed puppies. Yeah. I don't know what they're trying to do with it. If they're trying to, like, make her a likable character that you feel bad for, or if they're just trying to show her backstory, I don't know. So I watched the trailer. I don't, I don't really have any interest in it, by the way, but I did watch the trailer. I thought Emma Stone's accent was not that great. I don't know, maybe I'm being too harsh, but I think a good accent should mask... You should almost be able to listen to a good accent and not be able to tell who the actor is. It still sounded like Emma Stone to me. It does, yeah. Yeah, the accent's not great. What are they trying to do here? Yeah, more than anything, I think I'm a little bit confused by it, but... Because I got excited. I was like, oh, there's going to be a bunch of puppies. And then there was no puppies. It's not about the dogs. It seems like it's her backstory. Yeah, I said Suicide Squad, but I think really what I meant was uh, Birds of Prey. It almost had that sort of element to it, that feel. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Kind Where they're sh- trying to make you like shitty people. Are they trying to make you like her, or are they just giving her a platform to, like, go fucking crazy and have, have fun with it? I, I don't I don't know. I don't know. That's it. That's what I was trying to tell. Yeah. Uh, you can't tell that from the, the trailer. Anyway, that's it for horror news. Let's get into the movies. Let's start with Misery from 1990. This is a Stephen King novel I did read, but I read it after watching the movie quite a few times. I will say this. The movie is very faithful to the novel, Yes, which is probably a big reason why Stephen King loves it, because Stephen King loves it when movies cater to his original work. He does. Um, That being said, it's a good movie. I think I read the book and then watched the movie. 
Yeah. I don't I, think I, I saw the movie first. I saw this movie when I was really young. Too young to even really remember it. Yeah. And then I watched it probably again in college, and then we just rewatched it this weekend. You know, you spend a lot of time, obviously, with James Caan and Kathy Bates, who are both great. Yeah. So at times it just kind of hums along. Yeah. But then you get this these bursts of action and horror and violence that are just honestly iconic yeah. within the film industry. And again, I mean, Kathy Bates obviously turns in the performance oh of her God. lifetime. Oh, my God. Unreal. It's hard to watch at times. Some of the, the violence in it at times is like, oh, kills me. <laughs> the opening scene where Paul Sheldon, played by James Caan, finishes the book lights up a cigarette, drinks a glass of champagne. I couldn't help but think there's got to be some Stephen King in there. Oh, for sure. Because Stephen King obviously was a big substance abuser. Now I know he doesn't drink booze at all anymore, but I could totally see Stephen King finishing a novel and laying up a cigarette. You know, King King has always admitted that a lot of his works are influenced by his personal life and his experience with substance abuse. So I couldn't help but think there was some Stephen King in that. I read somewhere that this book in particular really had a lot of underlying tones related to his substance abuse. I, I think that's what I read. Um, so, yeah, for sure, in the, with this one. Well, I think he's on record of saying Kathy Bates, Annie Wilkes, is basically a metaphor for substance abuse. Yes. For being loving at times, being somebody you could depend on to turning on you very quickly and harming you. Yeah, I mean, I've never been in that situation, but I could imagine that that's what it feels like. The opening, not the opening scene, but the... You know, one of the more pivotal scenes of the movie is naturally the the car crash. Yeah. And that scene's done really well. It is, yeah. With the, the camera flipping over with the car. I love that. I thought that was really, really cool. And it's done in a way, the music playing is very happy-go-lucky. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> but you know it's coming. Yeah. I mean, if you even if you haven't seen the movie before, you probably know the story to Misery, what happens, and you know he's going to get into a car accident. Mm-hmm. So, the, you know, he's listening to the music. And he's humming along. You know he's driving too fast, and you know what's coming. But the scene is the scene's done really well. Um, and by the way, this is directed by Rob Reiner, who, coming off in 1986, directed another Stephen King adaptation, Stand by Me, which is definitely not a horror story. It's it's really one of King's stories that deviates the furthest from horror. Yeah. Uh, but Stephen King was hesitant to have a misery adaptation. Until he learned that Rob Reiner was interested. And because of Reiner's success with Stand By Me, which has become a really a cult classic, mm-hmm. you and I just watched it for the first time. We did. And, uh, I mean, the people love that movie. And people loved it back then. So so King felt comfortable handing Misery to Reiner. Yeah, I actually read that at the screening, King was having so much fun that in the final scene, he got up and yelled, Look out, she has a gun. And uh, something else, just to go back to the other episode of Corn Syrup that I did. Uh, Reiner actually was studying Hitchcock films to learn how to direct a horror movie because he had never directed a horror movie before. Hmm. So that's that those scenes like that where he does fun camera tricks probably learn from watching Hitchcock movies. Yeah. By the way, uh, Reiner went on to direct one of your favorites, one of your favorite movies right after Stand By Me. Do you know what he directed in 1987? No. 3 years before Misery, Princess Bride. And then, oh, I did know that, actually. And then in 89, he directed When Harry Met Sally. 
92, he directed A Few Good Men, so goddamn. He, That's another one of my favorites. From 86 to 92, he directed Stand By Me, Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, and A Few Good Men. Yeah. That is an unbelievable streak. Yeah, wow. He's not as relevant anymore, but I mean, when you have a streak like that, I'm sure he's sitting back and yeah. feeling, feeling pretty good about himself. Oh, yeah. Naturally, Kathy Bates won Best Actress. Yeah, it's the only Stephen King adaptation to ever win an Academy Award, I believe. You're right. And I, I was shocked that James Conn wasn't nominated. Yeah. I didn't think Conn would win. I thought for sure he was worthy of a nomination. Again, I didn't look up to see who the other lead actors were, either. so it's hard to compare. Uh, but Conn was not nominated for Best Actor, and Rob Reiner was not nominated for Best Director. Mm. And considering the fanfare that this movie got and the critical reception, which we'll get to in a little bit, I'm surprised that... Reiner didn't get a nom for Best Director, and again, I thought Khan was good enough to get a nomination for Best yeah. Actor. Well, I did read that Khan was not at all the first choice for the role. He yeah. was, like, way down the list and just ended up taking it, but at the end, he did a really good job with it. Yeah, so William Hurt got offered the role of Paul Sheldon twice, turned it down twice. Uh, Kevin Klein, Michael Douglas, Harrison Ford, Dustin Hoffman, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, which is hard to imagine, <laughs> uh, Richard Dreyfuss. Gene Hackman, that's also kind of weird, and Robert Redford. So a lot of you know older actors that don't do anything anymore. Um, I have written down that they offered a Jack Nicholson too, but he had such an experience, uh, such a difficult experience in The Shining that he turned it down. He didn't want to be in another King adaptation. Well, this is a, we'll get to that, but this is, <laughs> I think this was a lot easier film yeah. to be to be made than oh, The yeah. Shining. Oh, it took a lot less time to film, too. Yeah, I think this would have been a walk in the park for Nicholson after, mm -hmm. the, after the Shining. To get back to the talking about Bates winning the Academy Award for this, that was the first time that a woman won an award like that in the horror genre, too. Mm. So a big step for the horror genre at the Academy Awards. Yeah, she's fantastic. I mean, oh, she, yeah. she really plays up the role of being very sincere and lighthearted. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, at the flip of a switch... She just goes into these tirades, um, yeah. and that's who the character of his, of Annie Wilkes is, but Bates is, is really great at it. And the crazy part is she was relatively unknown at she the was. time she was cast here, which I, don't, I didn't know. Um, she was a stage actor, like Broadway. And theater. Yeah. So she had been in movies before, but not to anything of this capacity. I mean, she never starred in anything, and she is the star oh, yeah. of this movie. And I think maybe that's why James Conn wasn't nominated because he's so clearly second fiddle in this movie. You know, Kathy Bates, whenever she's on screen, she just she just shines and really grabs your attention. And King liked her so much that he actually wrote two characters for her in The Stand. I think you're reading that right now. So there's a male character, Ray, in the TV adaptation. He wrote it as a female, and she played that role. And then Dolores Claiborne, he purposely wrote for her to play that as well because King just loved her so much after yeah. Misery. She makes a lot of sense as Dolores Claiborne. I can't. I think Ray was one of the, the bad guys, wasn't he? I think so. I, it's been so long since I read that book, I don't remember. There's so many characters that... Honestly, I'm near the end. There's no longer a Ray. So if there was a Ray, he's dead. <laughs> I don't want to spoil that for anybody. But. Rob Reiner was also in the film. Yes. Who was he? He was the helicopter pilot. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you bl you blink quick enough, you'll miss that there was even a helicopter pilot. But speaking of that, let's get to Buster. It let's was, get to Buster. God damn. Man, when he, when he gets a shotgun through the chest. Oh, broke my heart. 
even even though I knew it was going to happen, but rewatching it this weekend, you're you're still rooting for for old Buster. I wrote down, I aspire for you and I to be Sheriff Buzz in Virginia in our old age. Yeah. <laughs> I just love them so much. <laughs> there there could be worse outcomes. I'll, I would take it. The scene when they're driving in the car and she puts her hand on his knee and he's like, Virginia, when you're in the car, you're my deputy and that's it. <laughs> yeah, my man meant business. <laughs> Richard Farnsworth was the guy who played Buster. Unfortunately, he had a tragic ending to his life, killed himself in 2000. He was terminally ill and didn't want to live with the sickness anymore, I guess. But yeah, I mean, he's 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 great in this. There's never a moment you you spend so much time with with James Caan and Kathy Bates and a little bit with Richard Farnsworth and Frances Stern Stern Hagen who plays his wife, but there's rarely a moment where you're like oh there another scene with this character. I mean you you become attached to, to all of the characters in the movie, which is a credit to both the writing and the acting. Yeah, definitely. What about Annie Wilkes' vocabulary? I wrote that down. <laughs> cock-a-duty car and she said something was oogie i don't it's so funny but it kind of plays up her, her character it's an essential part of it where she's can be this sweet almost naive very character and childlike then, yes exactly and and it plays that part of her character up and you need it it wouldn't be the same without that yeah it's weird it's like you know she has little girl syndrome you know it's because they show that that scene where she's watching, you know, some game show and, and she's eating dinner and her dinner is a big two liter of Coke and a bag of chips. Yeah. So there is this childlike nature of her, you know, when she's not going through these manic tirades. And by the way, 18 minutes in is when we get her first semblance of madness. Yeah, but it's subtle at first. It, it's, yeah. She just has like a little flip out and then right away she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I, you know. It's just enough to give you an idea of what you're in for. Yeah. And then the, the real insanity starts when she finishes the book and she realized that Paul Sheldon killed Misery. Yeah. Um, and that's when she just, you know, takes a nosedive off a cliff. Yeah, yeah. And you kind of get it. I believe earlier than the 18 minutes too, she explains to him how she found him. And she says, I was following you. I was looking in your window, watching you write the book. And I know you come up here. And every time you come up, I kind of follow you and hope that I'll meet you. So I think at that point, there's this small sense of, okay, well, this lady's a little crazy. Yeah. But you don't really see it until she has that first little meltdown. I think this movie is especially scary for anybody that's been through uh, surgeries or broken bones or yes. physical pain of any kind. As one of those people, yes. <laughs> Just that first shot. I mean, it happens within like the first 18, 20, 15 minutes of the movie, I think, where, you know, she pulls the blankets down and you get a shot of his swollen oh. and bruised, battered legs. And it's pretty gross. Yeah. It's hard. That's why I say it's hard to watch at times as somebody who... I broke my legs, knee surgeries, things like that. It's so hard to watch. Um, how about the scene where he's crawling out of bed <sighs> and he has his upper half on the ground. Mm. He looks up at his lower half. He knows how brutal the pain's going to be and then he just goes for it. Yeah, I, not to that extent, but I've had those moments and watching that scene, he really sold it. You put yourself right back in that situation of knowing you have to move but knowing it's gonna hurt and mm -hmm. just trying to psych yourself up for it but you never really can by the way 30 minutes in almost on the dot is when she finds out that paul killed misery in his latest novel she's the first to read it um annie says to paul 
if I die, you die. So that's that's basically the first threat of the movie where Paul now officially knows the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's living with a with a crazy person, and he's there's a good chance he's not going to make it out alive. She also throws a comment in. Um, I don't remember exactly what she said, but it's where she says people were like spinning her words around and she was like it happened when I was on the witness stand in Denver mm-hmm. and it's just a really quick little line but it's something that I realized right away foreshadows all the stuff that they find out later on with her um uh, yes yeah. so I thought that was a, a cool little thing to kind of pick up on as going through the movie good point I, for, I forgot she even said that but that's a that's a good point because she just brushed over it really quickly and then it was never really elaborated on until you get he finds i think he finds a scrapbook and it has all the yeah stuff in it yeah i think the the number one scene for bates in this movie amongst many great ones i mean every time she's on screen she's great but the gun scene where it's raining out she comes in she's obviously severely depressed and suicidal and murderous and you know paul asks her what's wrong and she says the rain uh, gives her the blues sometimes, mm-hmm. and then she whips out the gun. Her acting there in that scene, um, I, I like to think that, you know, you know how they show one scene at the Oscars mm-hmm. when it comes to um, when they get ready to announce the award? Yeah. I like to think that that's the scene that they showed. I don't know that for a fact, but that's an insane scene. Yeah, that's something that I wrote down in this is as mental health is something that's coming more and more to the forefront of conversation and not so taboo anymore, people are more willing to talk about it. This movie really depicts very, very well somebody who's struggling with major mental health issues. Mm. There's a lot of people who rain does that. A rainy day Mm. causes them depression and not to this extent where they're, you know, keeping a guy hostage and breaking his legs, but to the extent where rainy day is a sad day um and yeah she she did a great job at capturing that so two of my favorite scenes of the movie the scene where she goes out to get him new paper and he escapes from his room Mm -hmm. uh very tense scene he makes it back just in time sweat pouring down his face and then possibly my favorite scene of the movie is the dinner scene yes where he intends to drug her and my interpretation was she had a feeling that something was happening. You think? That was my interpretation. I go because, back and forth. Because at that point, I think she knew that she couldn't trust him. I go back and forth because she does have that childish, naive side to her. So I, at that point in time, I don't know that she fully thinks that this man she loves and idolizes would really turn on her. So I went back and forth on it. At first, I was like, yeah, oh, she knew. And then I don't know if, I don't know. I can't decide. It seemed like a likely accident. It's it seemed it too likely. Yeah. Um. Either way, I mean, I kind of like how it's left for you to, to kind of decide on your own. But it was after, I believe it was after he he first got out of his room, and yeah. she said she noticed that her penguin was facing the wrong way. So yeah, you know, maybe maybe she did actually know. Yeah, that dinner scene. That's like the last twenty twenty five thirty yeah. minutes of the movie. And by the way, you know, you're you're dealing with somebody that's obviously has a lot of mental illness, but. You know, toward the very end of the movie, you find out exactly who you're dealing with, and you yeah. find out that she's a total monster. Yeah, um, has been responsible for multiple deaths. She, uh, I'm assuming, she's no longer a practicing nurse, obviously, but she was. Yeah, and uh, responsible for numerous deaths, including a lot of children and infants. Yeah, and it was loosely based on a lady named Janine Jones. 
who was a serial killer from 1970 to 1982, who was responsible for more than 60 infant and children deaths. Yeah, I um, did read a little bit about her. At a hospital that she was working at. Yeah. So loosely based on Janine Jones. Let's talk about the hobbling scene. Let's talk about it. How does that how does that scene make you feel? Oh my god, it makes my inside squirm. But uh it's changed from the book. It's made a little lighter than the book. So in the book they actually spoiler alert. Which is hard to believe yeah. that it's lighter. So they actually she cuts one of his feet off with an axe in the book. One or both? One. Okay. And um so there was another director involved. George Roy Hill was the original director, but he refused to do the hobbling scene even without the part of it just breaking um so that's when reiner took over at that point for directing but kathy bates was upset that they at first she was upset that they weren't going to have her cut one of the feet off um but then when she was actually filming the scene she cried due to the level of violence and it was really really hard for her to inflict that pain um and did you read what they made the legs out of no gelatin that's funny yeah because <laughs> it was oh it was so great it's so hard to watch it's it's, it's really hard to watch. There's times where I don't... Sometimes I don't think this movie is horror in the traditional sense. But then I remember something like that. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, it, it's horror. Yeah, definitely. It, it definitely doesn't through the whole thing feel like horror. Uh, maybe more psychological. But that scene is... Psychological thriller. Yeah. In some ways, it feels like a love story at times. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, it really takes you through a, a, a wave of emotions. Yeah. Some drama with her mental health issues. Yeah. I mean, it's like I said, sometimes you think the movie feels really subdued, maybe overly subdued, and then there's like just these bursts of crazy moments. <laughs> like the fight scene at the end. Yeah. It's so good. Oh, it's so good. And I think it's hilarious yeah. when he's stuffing the burnt pages <laughs> down her mouth. Yeah. I think that is hilarious. <laughs> what blew my mind through the whole thing is... Uh, you right, Tucker? <laughs> Our dog is snoring. <laughs> what blew my mind through the whole thing is uh, how Kathy Bates is able to, like, throw James Conn over her shoulder in all these scenes and, like, carry him around the house. Like, carry him down the basement. Yeah. Really easily, too. Some of that stuff seems a little far-fetched. Like, when she takes him out of the... At, after the accident. Yeah. I mean, he's done. So he's dead. The definition of dead weight. Yeah. And she just kind of hoist him onto her back like he's a sack of potatoes. In it doesn't snow. really work that way. In yeah, snow. In snow. Yeah, in a blizzard. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that th is related to her mental stuff. Maybe she just gets like crazy strong strength. I don't know. It's, it's very possible we're just not meant to overthink that. <laughs> it's true. I think that's probably the case. <laughs> but yeah, the, the fight scene feels so rewarding at the end. It does. Because you know she's dealing with mental illness and you can sympathize with her a little bit up until the point you realize that she was killing children and babies. Yeah. So at that point, any sympathy you had... Mental illness or no mental illness, you know, yeah. she can fuck right off. Exactly. Um, and the and the end fight scene feels so rewarding. The way she dies, the way James Conn shows the papers in her mouth, <laughs> which I can't help but laugh at. Yeah. Um, but then there's that really creepy scene at the end where uh, he's in a restaurant with his publicist, I believe that yeah. is. And, or his uh, agent. Something uh, yeah. Like that. And the waitress walks by and it kathy bates's face and it just goes to show you people that go through a trauma like that even yeah. though the person who inflicted the violence upon them is dead in real life mentally you deal with that for the rest of your life ptsd and that's the scary part yeah he's always gonna have ptsd from that 
The hobbling scene you mentioned, it's number 12 on Bravo's Scariest Moments, which checks out. That sounds yeah. about right. Well, it aged well. Yeah, like, it I really did. I don't watch did. that it and really think, did. oh, if we did that now, it would look so much better. It, they did a really good job with it. And oddly enough, I don't think everything in the movie did age well. The only, the only real issue I have is the music. Yeah. The music sounds really like soap opera-ish yeah. at times. Feels It really makes the movie feel like a love story at mm -hmm. times, which... I guess I said that it kind of is, but I really think that's more so the music creates that tone yeah. that you associate with a love story or even a, you know, a romantic comedy. Mm -hmm. So I, I think the music could have been a little better. I think yeah. it could have been lended to the horror genre a little bit more. It was pretty forgetful for me. Yeah. So there's actually a cut scene from this movie, horror related scene. Did you know this? I don't know. Tell me. So I think it's in the book but there's a scene where another police officer comes to the house and she kills him with a lawnmower yeah i read about it and they took that scene out because they were like it's too graphic we can't have that scene in so, huh. so they 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 ha i guess they had to draw the line somewhere yeah so i was a little disappointed that they cut it though it might be a good scene <laughs> yeah so give me give me your letter grade for this movie i love this movie uh i do i think it aged well i I, I don't think I can push it into that A category, but I, I think I'll go B+. Plus. That's where I was at, too. Yeah. To, to me, it does fall short of the A-, minus, and it, it's hard to articulate why. Like, it's, it's very well done. Because although it was really good, it was missing some perfect pieces. Like, the music could have been better. I think it, it's possible it could have been paced a little bit better. Yeah, some of the, and the that, scenes... And that's being nitpicky, though, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's because a lot of the movie is just... Yeah. him by himself or him and her by themselves in the, in the house so yeah there were some scenes where maybe they could have cut a little bit or made a little bit shorter it's a movie spent in isolation like you know the thing from 1980 which me and mike spoke about that i mean that movie's not fast-paced no because you're spending so much time with a x amount of characters basically surrounded by the same four walls. Yeah. So there's only so much you can do from a pace perspective, but that's just a small nitpick. And I, I do think the music is a, is a detriment to the movie, and that's probably more than anything why I'm at a B plus rather than mm -hmm. an A minus. Yeah. If this movie had a badass score, we're talking about a, a better movie. I think so, yeah. So we might do this episode, but if you had to make a top, let's say, five Stephen King adaptations, does this crack your top five? I know it cracks your top ten. It easily cracks the top 10. Easily cracks the top 10. I don't think it makes the top five. All right. Well, maybe we'll save that for a future ep. Let's move on to The Shining from 1980. Personally, one of my favorite movies of all time. Unlike Misery, this is a very unfaithful adaptation of Stephen King's novel, um... And we'll get to that a little bit further, and we'll get into Stephen King's thoughts on the movie and why I think they're a little bit misguided. Uh, but right from the beginning of this movie, you get the music. That's another thing this movie doesn't have in common with Misery, is the music absolutely rips. Yeah, right from the beginning. Right from the beginning. And you get the scenic shot of the Colorado. I don't actually think it's filmed in Colorado. It may have been. So I read somewhere that... Um, the director Kubrick didn't want to leave Europe so he didn't shoot the initial scene somebody else did because he didn't like to fly or travel so it could be Colorado so you get you get the scenic shot of the mountains driving up the, you know the big mountain 
with that legendary score in the background. It lets you know right off the bat you're you're in for a real genuine horror movie. Oh yeah. Um, I love a good score, man, and this that score gets my uh, my blood pumping a little bit. Like, yeah, gets you ready for the movie. Yeah, classic intro too, driving up the mountains like that. Yeah, and having been out there, you and I both went to the actual hotel that this is based on, and it felt the same, driving mm-hmm. the mountains up there again to this hotel. When's the first time you saw The Shining? How old do you think you were? Oh. There's so many things I want to say about this movie that it's hard for me to really wrap my head around it, so I, I think that's a good place to start. So, unlike Ty, I didn't grow up watching a lot of horror movies, but this was definitely one of the first ones that I saw. A teen, like a young teen, maybe, with my dad. Yeah. So my parents were not big horror fans at all. Yeah. But I feel like this is a movie a lot of non-horror fans saw, too. Yeah. It had become so iconic. And honestly, ironically for Stephen King, it had become really synonymous with Stephen King, even though he disapproved of the movie. Yeah. Um, But I remember remember watching this with my parents. It might have been just my dad, but I was really young. Yeah. And it might have been younger than me you know even before i got into slasher movies i was really young this was just a movie that people watched yeah even if you weren't you know a full-fledged horror fan yeah like even my sister she's not a big horror fan and she just went around halloween and watched this in a theater like a dinner theater yeah and she had like the time of her life by herself just what other horror movies are like that i mean a psycho might be like that yeah definitely but there's not many uh you know, I know no. I know people that haven't seen Halloween. Yeah. But I just I just feel like most people I know have seen The Shining. Yes. Jaws is another one. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's Everybody a... and their mother has seen Jaws. Yeah. You, you can't a... really call like the Jurassic Park movies horror, but the f- I think the first one you can. Yeah. So I think the first one's a genuine. That's like another one. Yeah. So one thing I really liked about just the the pacing of this movie is the. There, there were like title scenes within the actual movie. So like at the beginning it said the interview. And then I think there was one that said closing day. And then it started going like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And it would break it down day by day. And I liked how that kind of made it feel like a book. It was like an ode to the fact that it was a book. Yep. So many iconic shots. Before we even get into the acting, just some of the shots that this movie is known for. Like the blood gushing down the hall. Yeah. The twins. The tricycle scenes. Well, actually, they're not twins, by the way. Oh, they're not? One of them is actually... So, in the story, one of them is older than the other. But the way they're portrayed, yeah. I mean, they look identical. Oh, I thought you meant the actresses that played them were No, twins. I meant I meant within the context of the story. Oh, yeah, they're not. There's, they're an, there's an older daughter and a younger daughter. Yeah. But, but they, then, you know, they look like twins. Yeah, but now they're known as twins because of this movie. Correct. This is another movie about a writer. We're doing two movies based on Stephen King books about writers. Yeah, so. and, I, and I don't think that's a coincidence. I mean, Stephen King is obsessed with the profession of writing. And like any good writer, a lot of his work comes from personal experiences. Um, and naturally, you and I went to the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado, back in 2016, I think it was. But so Stephen King had a haunted experience there, in room 237 right 217 in the movie it's 27 or 237 but it's actually room 217 okay. the hotel asked for it to be 237 because they don't have a room 237 <laughs> yeah when i when i said 237 in my head i was like wait a minute i don't think that that was only the movie yeah it's it's 217 yeah 
He was disappointed the movie wasn't shot at the Stanley. Yeah. In Estes Park. Yeah. Which I can see, because that's where he actually had these experiences, and it's what it's based on. Of all the gripes that King has with the movie, I think that's one of the ones that are more legitimate. And maybe one of the crazier things about this movie is it actually was... Most of the interior shots were not shot in a hotel at all. Really? This was actually set pieces. Wow. Which is hard hard to imagine. Yeah. Impossible to imagine, almost. Yeah, because um, there's a lot of different big rooms. Yeah. So I guess my question to start this off is, could you do it? Could you live and do what Jack Torrance is being tasked with doing? It depends who you are. I mean, I, I think if you're if you're a writer, you could find a lot of inspiration. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in a sense, if you're a writer, the isolation is probably good, mm-hmm. which I think was his original motive for taking the job. It would give him the time and the peace and quiet to write. Yeah. So I think it depends who you are, and I think a shorter answer to your to your question would, I think, is yes. Yeah, I think COVID has, uh, <laughs> although it hasn't forced us into that level of isolation, you kind of got a, a sense of what it would be like, and we've definitely got more used to it. <laughs> I think because I'm not a I'm not an alcoholic like Jack Torrance, so I mean, if if it came with a full bar, that would that would definitely be a bonus. <laughs> but hey, they gave you all the food you need. Yeah, I would do it. Yeah, especially if you're, you know, cutting me a paycheck. (laughs) The exterior shots of the Overlook Hotel—they don't compare. I don't. I think to the Stanley. From an external standpoint, the Stanley had much more character. Yeah, we have pictures of the Stanley. Maybe we should post that on our Instagram account. Yeah. Um, but it was the Timberline Lot, the Timberline Lodge in Oregon, was most of the exterior shots Mm -hmm. for the Overlook in the movie. It's still nice. It's just it doesn't have that grandeur feeling that the Stanley does. It's darker colors. It doesn't have like the big porch because that was what made the Stanley kind of beautiful was that huge yeah. porch on the front of it. and So you could sit outside and enjoy the mountains. This hotel didn't have anything like that. Mm-hmm. It felt like more like a ski lodge, but they closed down. Right. So this net obviously was directed by Stanley Kubrick, the very innovative director. Uh he was coming off a, a disappointing movie that was not commercially well-received, didn't generate a lot of money. He wanted to do something that would appeal to a wider audience. He read a stack of horror books that he did not like, and he kept reading and he kept reading until he finally found himself immersed reading The Shining, mm-hmm. and he decided this was the movie that he wanted to buy the rights to. Now, Stanley Kubrick, uh, for anyone who has ever read about him or, or seen any of his other movies, it's not surprising that he didn't make a faithful adaptation. I mean, he's very original and very innovative. Yeah, He's not going to do what, no offense to Rob Reiner, he's not going to do what Rob Reiner did, read a novel and turn it into a, a faithful yeah. adaptation. It just was never going to happen. Yeah. I think when he originally bought it, it was under the terms that he had creative liberty to change whatever he wanted. And King signed off on that. Yeah. Um, the biggest change he made that I wasn't a fan of in particular was killing off DeCalorin. And I read that he just wanted a death because he said only having the the death of Jack Torrance in the movie didn't feel right. He felt like he needed the death of an innocent. At one point he talked about killing off Danny, um, but then decided to go with DeCalorin. And to me, it felt like kind of a meaningless death, like this character that meant so much to Danny and that kind of showed him who he really was 
just got an axe to the chest and that was it. Yeah, and you know they they showed him taking the trip up from Miami to Colorado, and then it kind of just ends pretty quickly. Yeah, it felt like they invested a lot. He's not really involved at all in the climax of the movie. And I know his death was instrumental in the fact that it pulled Jack away from the bathroom door so Wendy was able to get out. Uh, but other than that, why? Like, why did he feel like an innocent had to die? Why did there need to be another death in the movie? Especially if you go on to read um, Dr. Sleep, Dick Halloran's character continues to come up in that story, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, for so sure. It's kind of disappointing to see him killed off. I know at the time, Dr. Sleep wasn't a thing, but I don't know. It felt like I didn't understand that death. Kind of made for an awkward transition into the movie, Dr. Sleep, too. Like oh, yeah. Mike Flanagan, would, Mike Flanagan was kind of left picking up the pieces there. Exactly. Tr- trying to figure out what to do. Yeah. Not that Kubrick could ever anticipate that anyway. Exactly. Not, not that he would care about Mike Flanagan. Yeah. At least he didn't kill Danny off. <laughs> it, it does seem kind of like a, a, a forced change. Yeah. Um, maybe a change for the sake of a change rather than having some intent behind it. Exactly. That's how I felt about it. Should we continue with changes that he made? Yeah, abs- yeah absolutely. Um, so a change that King struggled with, and I think in the past it never bothered me, but sitting down watching it this time, is the, the fact that um, I struggled with watching the movie and thinking – did the hotel drive the man crazy or was the man crazy himself? And I think that's something that King also said. He, he didn't like Jack Nicholson in the role mm-hmm. because he said he seemed crazy from the start. And Torrance wasn't supposed to be crazy from the start. He was supposed to be this guy that, yeah, he fought with alcoholism, but the hotel is what drove him crazy. And you don't get that sense in the movie. At least, at least personally, I didn't really get that sense so much and I don't think it took away from the movie I just think it's a way that the movie deviated from the book I didn't think the movie did a great job of showing that the hotel itself was evil especially when you take away that scene at the end where the hotel gets blowed up because the the boilers and and all that um Cooper didn't want to blow the hotel up because he felt it was too cliche and I get that but I think he couldn't could have done a little bit better of a job of showing that there was some kind of innate evil in the hotel itself so bef- before I get into my thoughts on Stephen King's take on the hotel versus Jack Torrance, um, I think the, the in regards to the hotel being evil or not in the movie edition, you have to ask yourself when Jack sees the woman in room ter- in room two thirty seven, when he sees Lloyd the bartender, when he sees Grady, are they ghosts or is he suffering from cabin fever? Yeah. That's the question. And we don't know that, and I don't think we're meant to know that. It's all up for interpretation, which yeah. a lot of what Stanley Cooper did in this movie and his other movies, you know, that that's that's the director he was. Yeah. So, you know, if, if you take them as being ghosts, well, then I think you get a healthy dose of the evil that is the overlook. Yeah. If you take it as Cabin Fever and Jack's mental stability is slowly deterior- deteriorating— well, then that does not do anything in regards to the hotel being evil. Well, then yeah. it's then it's simply Jack losing his mind. And I think maybe that's the way I took it, is it's more him losing his mind. It's weird. I, I never took it that way up until we, re- we rewatched it this weekend and I started exactly. doing some research. I always thought my interpretation was that they were ghosts. Yes. And I still don't know. 
by yeah. the way. I'm not convinced one way or another. Mm-hmm. But let me get into Stephen King's thoughts. I don't fully agree with that. I think part of the... I think he kind of had it out for Jack Nicholson a little bit even before the the movie was revealed. Yeah. Because Jack Nicholson a few years prior was in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest where he played a very manic, disturbed individual. Um, and he wanted like more of an everyman to be cast. Yeah. Somebody that the public eye did not see as this crazy actor. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody that could slowly dive into the insanity of the role. So he disapproved of Nicholson right off the jump. It's not f- until 45 minutes into the movie where you see Jack diving into madness a little bit. It's when he's typing mm-hmm. and, you know, Wendy comes up and he basically tells her to fuck off. Yeah. I mean, I think he literally tells her, why don't you get the fuck out of here? Yeah. And that and that's really the first sign. Maybe not the first sign. That's the most, that's the first point where, you know, they beat it over the audience's head mm-hmm. that he's, that he's. That he's fallen off a cliff pretty quickly. Yeah. And then another 15 minutes later is when Jack has the nightmare where he kills Wendy and Danny. And what does he say when Wendy wakes him up from that nightmare? He says, I must be losing my mind. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to me, I don't think Jack is crazy right off the bat. Yeah. I think it's a, I think it's a valid question of whether it's the hotel or it's just cabin fever. Yeah. I think that's the question. I don't think he's this disturbed individual right from the jump. Yeah. So that's where that. I differ with King's opinion. I would say there comes a connotation with Jack Nicholson that he's kind of crazy. So maybe that's where people see it from is, yeah. you know, he his face is very animated, which gives you that thought process of that guy's crazy. He makes these ex- exaggerated facial expressions, and I think that kind of gives people a he's crazy yeah. kind of sense. But I think that's just who he is as a person. And I never... Like you said, I never really questioned um, the hotel versus cabin fever until I watched it this time. Yeah. Purely because I had read that that's how King felt. Um, I see how the book did a much better job at showing that it was the hotel itself. For sure. Um, but like you said, I think that was a good point that it's it's just how you look at it. Like this is the first time I think I ever looked at it and thought, oh, that's just in his imagination. That's not ghosts. Yeah, so I, I think the only validity behind Stephen King's opinion is that you could make a case, maybe Kubrick or whoever casted Nicholson maybe shot themselves in the foot a little bit. Hmm. Because like you said, the public perception of Jack Nicholson is and was, you know, being really good at playing a, a crazy, disturbed individual. Yeah. So you therefore you see him as this crazy disturbed Right from the jump. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't help that right from the jump he is playing a recovered, recovering alcoholic. Yeah. Which, again, does not make him a bad person. That's who he is in the novel as well. Mm-hmm. You know, and then there's there's the case of him hurting Danny. Um, and that's something that was obviously handled a lot differently back then than it would be today. That was something you and I talked about watching the movie. We couldn't believe when when she was sitting there talking to the doctor and said was just straight up with, oh, yeah, he came home drunk and dislocated his arm. Nowadays, CPS would get involved in that, and people would be very, very hesitant to just tell a doctor that, like, you know, oh, but he stopped drinking, so it's okay. Like, it would be handled so differently now. Yeah, definitely. So Nicholson's fantastic in the movie. I mean, he's fantastic in everything. Yeah. What do you think about Shelley Duvall? This is a polarizing thing. 
and I won't say any more. I want to get your honest opinion. I go back and forth. I think there's times in the movie where she's she is really good at showing that she cares for Danny. I think she she's really good in that aspect of it. But when it comes to the horror bits of it, sometimes she does things that I just don't understand. Like when the scene where she's running around, um, I think it's after she breaks out of the bathroom and she has the knife in one hand and her hands are like flailing in the air. Yeah. What are you doing with your hands? Yeah, she doesn't know what to do with her hands. Yeah, but I think she did really good with Danny. I think being the loving mother, there was no problem at all. Um, I did read that her and Nicholson didn't always get along and that there was disagreement between the two of them and how to portray the relationship um, between Jack and Wendy, how she wanted their relationship at the beginning to be very loving and then slowly become distanced through the movie. And Jack said, no, it should be distance the whole time and i i think they more so went with what he wanted than her definitely um so she wasn't my favorite but she wasn't terrible i think i i I think and this might contradict your opinion actually a little bit i mean i think she gets better as the movie goes on yeah i think in the beginning like some of the scenes for example the scene that you just alluded to where she's speaking to the nurse about jack's drinking and how he dislocated danny's arm Mm -hmm. that seems pretty rough like I think when you just put her in a room where she's where she has a lot of dialogue one on one with somebody, she's not that great. She's too flat. But for example, very deep into the movie, the staircase scene, where oh, I mean, yeah. she doesn't know how to hold a baseball bat. That's a different story. <laughs> but but her acting is is pretty good. She seems terrified. It's scary. Yeah. And I, she's not a great actor. No. So like, but I think the imperfect acting fits. Yeah. In a weird way that I can't really articulate. Yeah. Maybe I'm just used to it. Yeah. Um, but I but I think the imperfect acting, she, and I think there's parts where she overacts. Yes. Like, for example, the famous Here's Johnny scene. Yeah. You know, her screams are a little over the top. <laughs> they are, yeah. Um, yeah. But it's just a role that I, I like it. And yeah. I struggle with trying to even explain how. I just think the imperfect acting of her... And honestly, Scatman Crothers is not that good of an actor either as Dick. No, but in, I love in, him in, in this certain movie. parts. Yeah. Well, you love him because his character is very easy to love. Yeah. But I don't think I don't think he's a great actor. No. But again, I think those roles and like the imperfect acting for me is not a detriment at all to the movie. I don't yeah. really know how to explain that, but mm-hmm. that's just the way I feel. There's just a couple awkward times with her where, like, yeah. the, the scene that you said with the the nurse. Um, and she doesn't know how to light a cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, there's just some awkward things that she does, like the way she held the baseball bat was awkward. The way she was flailing her arms was awkward. Yeah, just she didn't always know which is like how to fully act. Like she could get like halfway there, but not all the way there. But it worked. Well, and you said she butted heads with Nicholson. She also butted heads with Kubrick. That wouldn't surprise me. And Stanley. Well, I mean, you're talking about Kubrick and Nicholson, but guys that are both pretty notorious for being a little bit difficult. Yeah. Perfectionists. Yeah. Um, you know, my way or the highway type people. Uh-huh. And I think Shelley Duvall was not new, but not totally experienced either. I mean, yeah. relatively inexperienced, inexperienced, and she hasn't done a whole lot since. Yeah. Unfortunately, she's had a lot of mental illness mm-hmm. troubles, a lot of financial troubles. She was had a pretty famous um, episode of Dr. Phil that she was on that highlighted her mental illness mm. a few years ago. So mm. she's pretty much completely out of the spotlight at this point. You know, scene I wrote down where she was awkward in was um when dick's taking them around the kitchen 
and he calls Danny Doc before she does. And she just, like, very matter-of-factly is like, how would you know we call him Doc? We didn't say Doc. And, like, as a mother, I would imagine if somebody knew your child's nickname and you knew that they didn't knew it, I feel like you'd be a little bit more like, how the hell do you know that? Not just, like, pleasantly smiling, saying, like, how do you know we call him Doc? That's exactly my opinion. When you put her in a room with with dialogue, like, one-on-one with somebody, she's pretty bad. Yeah. You know, when she's acting frightened and all that, yes. and, and the, the intensity is turned up. When there's heightened up, emotions, she's, she's yeah, better. She's not bad. And by the way, it's not until, I'm, I'm assuming Kubrick did this on purpose, but I thought this was really interesting. It's not until 54 minutes into the movie that Jack and Danny are alone together at all without Wendy. or with, Or without one of the hotel staff. Hmm. And it's the scene where he goes up to the room to get his um, fire, I think, fire engine truck. Yeah. And it's it's a pretty scary scene. It is. Uh, Jack is sort of in a trance, mm-hmm. it seems. Um, but that's the first time in the movie, and I was keeping an eye on that at, when we rewatched it. That's the first time in the movie that they were alone together. Yeah. And it's good directing by Kubrick because obviously there's the the question of, you know, child abuse. Yeah. Can um, he be trusted? Or like right. in the real world, if a, if a drunk dad hurt his son like that, how many mothers would really be willing to let the dad have one-on-one time with the kid? Let's get into Danny. Yeah. Love him. He's pretty good. So did you know that the finger, the wiggling the finger when he talked to Tony was his idea? And that's what got him the role? No. That's yeah. funny. That was his idea. And Kubrick loved it so much. He knew, I want him. Uh, Danny Lloyd, I believe was his name. Yes. Um, Danny as well. And... Yeah, that was what got him the role, and they wrote it into the script. They liked it so much. And he was just so, as a child actor, he had a lot of lines in this movie and, like, pretty drawn-out scenes. Did really well. Especially in 1980. It's hard to find good child actors, but I think there's a lot more today. Yeah. Uh, For example, look at the It movie from 2017 or whatever that was. Yeah. And those kids are a good bit older than him, though. He was young true. in this movie. You're right. They were young teens, I guess. Um, but, you know, I, I do think child actors are so hit or miss, and more often than not, they're miss. Oh, yeah. Uh, but they found a the good one. I mean, he was convincing. He was cute. He was charming. I do know that they didn't let him know this was a horror movie. I read that. Yeah, yeah they did, which makes sense. I mean,. What little kid would you want to know that they were in a horror movie? One of the things that I loved is I noticed the scene where he's sitting down with Dick Haller and eating the ice cream. He, the, he's got ice cream all around his mouth, so they definitely let him eat the ice cream. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which I thought was cute. But he was so good. Like, so often he would just give the blank face, which in the scene you were just talking about where they're one-on-one, he's just so void of emotion. Yeah. And for a kid, that's... I thought that was tough. I thought that was really, really good. How about the the shots of him riding his tricycle Love around it. the hotel? Really good stuff. Iconic. I mean, it's, I saw when I was doing research, I read a, an article and the headline said um, he was supposed to get to keep the tricycle after the fact. I don't know if they, I didn't read it, so I don't know if he actually got to. Um, but yeah, those scenes were, I loved the one point I pointed out to you, the uh, that he stopped when he was leaving the hotel room, the 237, to get the tricycle going again. He, like, spun the wheel yeah. with his hands. <laughs> such, a, such a little kid move. Such a little kid move, and I love that that was in the movie. Yeah, obviously those are iconic shots, and they seem pretty simple, but, you know, a lesser director, you might not get those shots. Yeah. And this was one of the first movies of all time, the first half a dozen or so, 
that utilize the Steadicam technology. And they did a really good job with it. A technology that seems so simple. Yeah. Um, but at the time, it was so innovative. Yeah. And I don't think they overdo it. Yeah. I think a lot of times when movies are the first, or when anything's the first to utilize a new kind of technology, they'll tend to overdo it. Um, and although it was used a lot in this movie, it's used in all those hallway tricycle scenes, it's used in the maze, um, I think they do a good job of not overutilizing it. Yeah. And by the way, I just want to go back in real quick. We did not acknowledge the film composers, uh, but they were Wendy Carlos and Rachel Elkind. Females. Um, yeah, and Wendy also composed the score for A Clockwork Orange, which is uh, another Kubrick film. Yes. But real quick, I just wanted to go back. It wouldn't have been right to, to not mention them. Such yeah. an iconic score. I think, um, like, talking with the, the all the hallway scenes, you get a really good sense of, I think those scenes in particular give you a good sense of how big and empty the hotel is. Yeah, one of my favorite scenes of many is not even really horror oriented but just when you know when the torrents first arrive at the overlook and they take that grand tour yeah um i mean it's got to be like a 10 to 15 minute scene of them just touring the hotel but it really gives you an idea a great idea as to how how big and empty that place really is oh yeah speaking of favorite scenes i think if i had to pick one favorite it's the bar scene with lloyd when jack first comes across lloyd yeah just the dialogue between Jack Nicholson and Lloyd is so Great. good. And Nicholson is especially fantastic mm -hmm. in that scene. This movie has to be a very early depiction of gaslighting, meaning, you know, Jack Nicholson is clearly playing head games with Wendy. Oh, yeah. Trying to convince her that she's the one that is losing her mind. He's yeah. playing these psychological med game, head games. Uh, for example, when Wendy locks Jack in the freezer... You know, Wendy states she's confused. Mm -hmm. She doesn't know what's real, what's fake. Is she crazy? Is Jack crazy? So that's a very early depiction of a term that I don't even think existed back then, gaslighting. Yeah. No. Uh, but a really interesting, really, really interesting stuff there. Yeah. How do you think he got out of that freezer? I mean, that's the one scene in the movie that really led me to believe there's ghosts. Yep. If there was a scene, that is the one. If there were a scene that confirmed that the hotel was evil and that, uh, you know, these characters that Jack Torrance was come across were actual ghosts, mm -hmm. that would be the scene that, that confirmed that belief. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So shooting for this movie took over a year. I did read that, yeah. And a, That must have been hard with the child actor because I didn't notice him age. Yeah. I think it's just the the perfectionism of Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. And uh, Shelley Duvall is actually on record of saying the famous Here's Johnny scene took three days and they went through 60, 60 doors. doors. Yeah. That was also improvised, that line, that Here's Johnny line. <laughs> Kubrick actually didn't even know where it came from. <laughs> it actually came from uh, Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show, which Kubrick didn't know because he lived in England. A week after this movie was released to theaters, mm -hmm. a scene was cut had Wendy in a hospital, and police were telling her that they did not find Jack's body. Yeah. I'm glad they cut that scene. Mm-hmm. I think the way they ended it was more ambiguous. Yes. And more interesting. Yeah. You know, I, I, I didn't want anything more. to feel definitive. You didn't need more. That was enough. I didn't want, yeah, I definitely didn't want more. Yeah. You know, I guess the, the thought process there is to give the movie more of a sense of closure. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that they didn't go that route. Or actually, they did go that route, but I'm glad that Kubrick went back and cut that. Mm -hmm. 
So one of the things that I've been pondering about is so they didn't tell Danny that he was filming a horror movie, but during that final maze scene, he is really good at acting like he's horrified. So I wonder how they they went about doing that. I guess telling him to be afraid, but not telling him it was a horror movie. Yeah, and maybe as a child actor, I would imagine you just feel off of the emotions of your counterpart, which yeah. would have been Shelley Duvall. And Jack Nicholson at that point. And Nicholson. Maze scene. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I interpreted it as, you know, him just playing off of the emotions of mm-hmm. Nicholson and Did Duvall. you like the... Did you like the adaptation from the book where they took the animal hedges and made it into this hedge maze? Did you like that change? I think it would have been hard to do it otherwise in a yeah, movie. exactly. That was scary, though. I mean, that was yeah. a very scary part of the novel where the, the hedges actually came alive in the form of actual animals. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. I kind of forgot about that until you just said it. Mm-hmm. But it, it, that really had some potential to look really silly exactly. in a movie. Yeah, Especially I, back in 1980. I think that's why they didn't do it. Uh, I've read somewhere they thought it would look too childish. Um, but I think also that would have been something that would have aged the movie because the ability from a cinematography standpoint at that time and a special effects and what they would have been able to do would now probably look pretty lame. Yeah. So I'm glad they did the hedge maze. Did you know... Uh, to make the snow in that maze, they used 900 tons of salt and crushed up styrofoam. Wow. Yeah. Looked like snow. Yeah, and we'll go back and discuss this about Misery, but this this movie was really only a modest success at the box office. Really? Um, it was made on a $19 million budget, mm-hmm. which back in 1980 is a lot. But it, 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 I say only in air quotes, but it only generated $47 million. Oh, that seems um which again different lot. different times. Yeah. But still that's not like a rip roaring success that you mm-hmm. that you would think. Yeah. And um a lot of the early reviews of this movie were very mixed as well. It's now gone on to be like a lot of horror movies that are deemed some of the best horror movies of all time. The opinion in this movie has evolved over time and it's now widely widely considered to be one of the best horror yeah. movies of all time. As which a movie, it is. I love it. As an adaptation of a book that I love, I like the book better. Yeah, but, but the I lo- movie I love. I love this movie so much that I don't care. I'm able to separate the two. And you have to. I, I don't think care. that's the thing. You yeah. can't look at I'm watching an adaptation of the Stephen King book. You have to look at it as I'm watching The Shining. I also like an original take. Yes. Again, I watched Misery before I read it. Yeah. And reading it, sometimes it felt like you were reading the screenplay for the movie. I tried to do that. It's not hard, but I tried to do the Game of Thrones. I watched the show, and then I was like, oh, I'll pick the books up. And I couldn't do it because it felt like I was reading the screenplay, and it was boring. And I feel like I walked away with a lesser appreciation of the novel Misery because I had that opinion formed in my head because I was desensitized to a lot of the stuff that King had written. Exactly. Um, and I didn't like that. So I, And again, when you hire Stanley Kubrick, what do you expect? Yeah. So... I like that they're different. I think we're both saying that. Oh, yeah. Because we both saw the movie before we read the book. And reading the book was a treat because it was different. Yeah. They feel like two different, I don't want to say standalone pieces of work, but... Close. Close. They, they, they seem, they feel like really good counterparts. Yes. It's probably my second favorite book of all time. Mm-hmm. And man, it, it's up there for one of my favorite movies of all time. I would agree. It's two and a half hours long, yet so rewatchable. Mm-hmm. 
interesting enough, I think what I discovered throughout the process of this podcast is you pick up on something new every single time you watch it. Yeah. Yes. Your opinions on what is happening and your emotions toward the occurrences in the movie evolve Mm -hmm. with every single watch. And to me, I think that is like the textbook definition of a movie that has stood the test of time. Oh, yeah. You asked me with misery if this if that broke my top five Stephen King adaptations. Shining easily does. Could very well be my favorite. Rotten Tomatoes score for this. 84% from critics, 93% from the audience. I'm not surprised yeah. that the audience score is higher. For misery, uh, we'll circle back. It's 90%, 90%. So 90% from critics, 90% from audience. Mm. Misery had a $20 million budget, and it generated $61 million. At the box office. So it made a lot more. Different time. I wonder why. Of course. Yeah, but keep in mind that there's inflation involved there as well. You know, all told, they're probably similar. Yeah. Um, The fact that, you know, $19 million budget in 1980 is obviously significantly bigger than a $20 million budget in 1990. Neither one of them are huge successes. Yeah. Of course, you know, here in 2021, we're so used to seeing these ridiculous box office numbers and things weren't like that back then anyway. So let's end it with this, the photo that The Shining ends with. Okay. With Jack at the at the party. Yep. The hotel party, 1921. Yep. What is your interpretation of that? I was afraid of you to ask me that because I don't really know what I think about it. Does it, I guess, does it mean that he was always destined to be there? Does it mean that the hotel kind of owns his soul and any, you know, reincarnation of his life is always going to end there? Uh, I guess that's really the only way for me to take it because um, you can't really take it as like he's a ghost because he existed before and outside of the hotel as well. The co- The common opinion is that the hotel essentially absorbed him, which again, if that is what you choose to believe, that is another indication that the hotel, you know, that there's evil at play. Yeah. Um, that is the common opinion. I don't know how I feel about that though. It absorbed him because... Like I said before, he did have an existence outside of the hotel before. It's not like his whole life has been destined to be there the entire time. I could see that there's a connection between his soul, life force, whatever, and the hotel. Um, But there is a point in time where his life was his own. Well, that is the beauty of this movie because you might watch it again in a year and you might feel differently about the ending. What's your feeling? I don't have one. I mean, I I think the most I think the fact that he was absorbed by the hotel, or not the fact, the idea, that's probably like the simplest way of explaining it. But I think it's just that. I mean, I I think Kubrick did it in a way that I don't think anything was simple when it mm-hmm. came to Stanley Kubrick. I don't think anything is simple when it comes to this movie. So frankly, I don't have I've never had an opinion on that, yeah. and I'm okay with not having an opinion on that. Yeah, the mythology surrounding this movie, the ambiguity of it. Uh, it was all detailed a lot in a documentary from 2012 called Room Two Room 237, mm-hmm. which used to be on Netflix. I don't know if it is anymore. Uh, but you can watch The Shining and Misery on HBO Max. They are both readily available. I give The Shining an A+. Yeah, I have to give it an A. We'll end it there. We'll be back in a couple weeks. I'll be with Mike, I think. Unless he, you know, decides to stay in South Beach, which yeah. I wouldn't blame him for. No, me neither. But we'll be uh, into our St. Paddy's Day 
episode, and we'll be talking about everybody's favorite slasher franchise, the Leprechaun, Leprechaun. series, <laughs> uh, the critically acclaimed Oscar nominated <laughs> Leprechaun franchise. Until then, thank you. <laughs>